Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. I'm here with Brendan Susi and Shane Pill to discuss a recent article called Getting the Tip of the Pen on the Paper, How the Spectrum of Teaching Styles Narrows the Gap Between the Hope and Happening. Uh, it was recently published in JTPE. Um, I'll, as always, put the full site of the article in the notes section so you can read it through there. Um, so, Brendan, Shane, thank you uh, for coming on to the podcast and welcome. Thanks very much, Risto, for inviting us on the podcast. Uh, on behalf of uh, the other authors, besides Shane Pill, which are Michael Davies and John Williams from the University of Canberra, uh, we really appreciate the opportunity to come on and speak about the article. Nice to be on again, Risto. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is the longest pre-show that I've had. I had a great, great time chatting with both of you for... 20 minutes. I know we have to like actually go do things, uh, but let me get into the article. Uh, and you started off by talking about different approaches to teaching PE. So I'm wondering if you can give me an overview of the discussion around model space practice and the questions you aim to answer uh, by writing this article. Sure. Well, as always, probably Risto, as you know from talking to academics, it's pretty hard to shut them up. But to try and give you the 100 words or less, um, I guess we started out trying to um, address a question or two questions that uh, Casey and Kirk, I think maybe, I can't remember some of the other authors that may have been in there with them, uh, which was a model-based practice, a great white hope or a great white elephant. And then another article that they wrote a bit later about uh, narrowing the gap between the hope and the happening with them. And I guess we suggested that models-based practice kind of gain momentum. I think when Kirk said that, you know, a quality PE is not going to survive or it's not going to thrive if it's, you know, in that traditional kind of approach of just um, multi-model sport kind of thing. And what we, through discussions, had probably came come to the conclusion of was that the spectrum may be able to help. So this certainly wasn't an article about critiquing models-based practice, we actually thought we might have the answer. Of course, that might be up to Casey and Kirk to decide if we've got the answer, but we thought that the spectrum could definitely help um, in two major ways, which I think we're probably going to talk about later on. So, yeah, that's pretty much it, I think. So can you give us an overview? No, if I could just... oh, yeah, go ahead. You were, you were counting the 100 oh, words, by the way, word by word, and I it did not it did not pass me, so... I think I stopped at 350. Oh. The, <laughs> one of the observations that we've made over the years is that there's a, there's a number of models that were talked about in the PE literature in the 1970s that don't get talked about in the PE literature today. Uh, fitness for Life, for example, is just one of them. Uh, some people have argued that the spectrum of teaching styles is not a model but it clearly has a model in the same way that TGFU has a model. TGFU has a pedagogical recipe. It also has a six-step model. The spectrum of teaching styles, if you like, also has a pedagogical recipe of its teaching styles, but then it also has a model that talks about mobility, ability within those models, that to, those styles to meet the teaching objectives for the students. So it's both a model and I'll use that metaphor of pedagogical recipe. And so it's a conundrum to us why the spectrum of teaching styles has been ignored, if not marginalised, in this current generation discussion of models-based practice. 
And so part of our objective was to insert it back into the discussion again because we believe it has utility in helping to understand some of the confusions around model-based practice. For example, sport education is listed as an instructional model, others listed as a pedagogical model. It's also a curriculum model because within the sport education model, you can use a game sense approach to teach the competency objective of the sport education model. You can use a TPSR model to teach for the um, motivated and enthusiastic sport participant objective of the sport education model. So what is a model seems very um, debatable in terms of mixed messaging in the literature. And we hope by returning to the spectrum of teaching styles idea that all pedagogies have utility. It's the mastery of the teacher to know when that particular pedagogy is suitable for particular learning outcomes that will help explain uh, how to modify the blueprints that are provided to be able to be situated into the practice of the individual teachers. So outside of being a model, can you explain just like a high level overview of what the spectrum of teaching styles is that was developed by Muska Mostyn? You ask a lot of hard questions here. I'll try and again do it in 100 words or less. Um, so I guess the spectrum is really around the concept or the definition by Boston <laughs> and Ashworth that teaching is a chain of decision making. Um, the who's making the decision, the what, the when, and the intention of the decision is probably the, the big thing or the big cornerstone. Um, when you define teaching in that way and look at who's making the decision, the 11 styles emerge. I guess if you use any other definition of teaching, you, you could get more styles, you could get less styles, you'd get different things. Um, but it's this intention of what the teacher is trying to do and matching their intent with, if you want to call it the learning objective or whatever it is they're trying to achieve. And what is it that they are going to do? And what is it that they are going to ask the student to do in terms of decision-making and how that then marries back or circles back to see in the assessment part, when I say assessment, I don't mean written as a test, but I guess saying how well did that intention meet the objective. So quite cyclical as you go around. Um, and I think the other part that's really crucial to the spectrum, and Pilly was talking about this before when he added his bit, was saying it's also um, like a little bit of a philosophy so there's a, quite a few things there you could say that I probably think the cornerstone is it's non-versus approach. So they speak about how educational ideas are often presented in opposition to each other, that one is better than the other, whereas they say, no, they're not, they're not better than the other. They, a teaching style may be more appropriate for meeting an outcome than another. But I also think this non-versus approach is how a lot of teachers, not just in phys ed, view pedagogy, that one is better than the other. But of course, if you view it like that, then there's only like, like every time there's one winner and there's a loser, and then you're forced to drop things. Um, some of the other uh, philosophies is, as Pilly was saying, the mobility ability, the teacher's ability to know when to move, but also how to move the decisions and change their behavior to get different outcomes. Um, that's probably in a nutshell, but of course, I definitely recommend reading teaching physical education, the free online version as well. Yeah, and and I uh, will link to that free online version because I know that I've I've sent that to most of the classes when I cover this in at Mason. I use it as like a free resource because it is a great resource and it's and it's free. Um, 
So I'm wondering, and Shane, you, you alluded to this earlier, that Spectrum is not included in models-based practice. So uh, off script here, is it included by Metzler in, in his list? It's not. Okay. So what's your argument for it should be in, uh, in those models? And do you feel like there's, there's an argument that you can provide for why it should be added as a, as a model? And I know you talked about this a little bit uh, also. I, it clearly does have a model, and that's the model of originally described as going from A to K with um, production and reproduction identification of styles. So on one, if you like, the left-hand side of the spectrum, we're dealing with teaching styles that ask students to reproduce information, to reproduce activity, that has been modelled or presented by the teacher in some way. So all the decision-making for uh, pre-impact planning, the impact, uh, how the teaching episode is going to occur and what the outcome of that teaching episode is, is teacher-directed. And then we move into teaching styles in the production cluster, which are moving some of that decision-making progressively towards the student because they have developed the capacity towards independent self-regulated, self-motivated learning as we move further on that right-hand side. So the spectrum as initially presented was a continuum of teaching styles from most teacher-controlled to least teacher-controlled at the end, recognising, as Brendan said, that's not a, a dichotomy where one end is better and one end is bad. Um, certainly, as we would take learners on a journey, we would hope that through good uh, curriculum practice students are able to take more self-regulation independence and motivation towards their learning and so the cluster of styles would shift towards more of the production style pedagogies as the learners develop their capacity to be learners but it's a non-versus approach and we redrew that model because we thought what was lost in that model was um, the idea of non-versus because some of the literature was saying well production cluster is better than reproduction cluster and we thought that was a misunderstanding of the idea of non-versus so we redrew it as a circle rather than as a linear A to K model and put the learner in the middle because for us teaching starts by understanding that learner that constructivist idea that we're building from that individual so that everything starts by understanding that individual and then moving out towards the teaching styles at the end So, and I know that, you know, this was a research study, so I want to also, like, we've gotten a lot of background on the, on the spectrum, but I'm wondering if you can just explain the background of the study or the, basically, like, an overview of the methods section here. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll launch off if I can just read, just quickly, because Brendan's been significantly uh, important in my understanding of models-based practice, and in particular, the work that I've done in game-based approaches. And many years ago, um, you know, Brendan and I crossed paths, I think in 2009, might have been the first time, where Sarah Ashworth was presenting at the Asper International Conference at QUT in, um, in Queensland. And that was the first time I'd come across really the idea of the spectrum of teaching styles was that presentation. And um, you know, Brendan was talking about it and others, and our paths have continued to cross. And then um, Brendan said to me, I'm writing this paper on the Game Sense approach because you and others have described the game sense approach 
as guided discovery, and I don't think it is. When often I see game-based approaches, whichever one it is, it looks like practice-style pedagogy because the students are practicing in a structure that's been decided by the teacher, articulated by the teacher, and outcome decided by the teacher. There isn't creativity and discovery in the sense of the cognitive operation that is described by that. And that, that took me back. And we opened up a, a couple of conversations and that led us to a paper where we described the game sense approach as a cluster of pedagogies using the spectrum of teaching style and suggested that often game-based approaches are actually not guided discovery in the way that the cognitive operation of discovery would typically be described. And Brendan's PhD in this area and uh, working with Mitch Hewitt have fundamentally shifted the way that I see game-based approaches as an outcome of those conversations. So what you're saying is an academic called you out on something that he disagreed with you and then you guys wrote papers afterwards and you're friends? Yeah, oh, pretty great. much. It's so nice had, that it works out yeah, that way sometimes. These, we Exactly, we had these conversations and it got to the point where we were going, there was an idea for a paper and Brendan, correct me if I'm wrong, um, we went, now nah, this paper is not giving us anything new. The new stuff is actually the conversation that we've been having the last four or five years. And I give credit for Steve Stoll's here. So very similarly, but different. Steve Stoll's contacted me a number of years ago, new into academia, and he's going, I'm teaching this TGFU stuff and I don't get it. And I'm not convinced on it. And so we started up a conversation around it. And then we presented a paper at the Atspur International Conference in Melbourne, where we actually came down the front and we replicated that conversation. And people went, wow, that's, that's one of the most interesting podium presentations we've seen where the two academics are just having the conversation with the contest of ideas. And then we wrote that up as a narrative inquiry and we were uh, informed by Robin Jones' paper where he had used a narrative inquiry fictional narrative inquiry to create a conversation. So we thought that would be a really good way to represent the, the qualitatively represent the ideas that we've been backwards and forwarding with for the last couple of years. And uh, yeah, Brendan ran with it and was able to get this paper. So then can you give me a, just a little bit of a, a background of that fictional narrative? Like how do you... How do you make it from your thoughts and beliefs and your conversations into putting it on a paper? And and was it like what was the review process? What did the reviewers just kind of like? Oh, I see it. I understand what's happening. Or was there any pushback from from doing it in that format? Yeah. So I, I guess to answer those questions, Risto, a lot of it is based on conversations that um, Shane and I have had, along with Michael Davies. Uh, John Williams a bit, Mitch Hewitt, who um, Shane mentioned, but also predominantly a lot of teachers and other academics when we, and, and pre-service teachers when we have conversations about these things. And we certainly don't want to get into <laughs> to a versus approach about qualitative, quantitative research. But I think at the same time, you know, you can ask teachers doing quantitative research, you know, uh, do you have problems with a game sense approach or any pedagogical model? And they can tell you those, but it's not until you do quality of type stuff that you can have this this dialogue or this richness, if you want to say, or 
richness of, or understanding of what some of their challenges may be with understanding and implementing. So in one way, this fictional narrative um, was based on a whole collection of people who we've been lucky enough to meet, who have been lucky, we've been lucky enough for them to speak up and challenge ideas or ask questions about it because they provided this richness, I think, of the discussion of these two characters um, about how hard it is to deal with these things. Um, and in terms of pushback, no, the Journal of Teaching and Physical Education was really good. They were really, the reviewers were really positive about, I don't know if you want to say the novelty or the difference of this kind of process. Um, and they, I think there may have been a question about, you know, how did we re refine this or how did we check the validity? And I think we say there with an, a, a fictional narrative that it is still ultimately up to the reader to decide is the narrative authentic to them. So we, we accept that. I guess in saying that, I think it's the same with, uh, you know, quantitative data as some people also sit there and say, oh, well, I'm, you know, the sample wasn't big enough or it came from this group or, what, or whatever. So the reader still makes that decision. But I guess it was through a process of us um, talking about it. I think there was one funny comment where I guess we decided that these two guys were um, Australian academics um, and one of the um, reviewers said, uh, should you change it to teachers? And without insulting our fellow countrymen, I said to uh, Pilly and John and Michael, these guys are some of the most qualified teachers I've ever met, if, um, <laughs> if that's what they know. Um, but we also wondered, was it perhaps the Australian way of how we converse that it maybe seemed a bit simple. Again, I know I probably don't sound very, <laughs> don't sound very complimentary to my fellow Australians there, but did we, do we speak quite plainly maybe to each other? Um, so yeah, but I think that's about it, Pilly, unless you think there's anything more or? Well, Dr. Brendan, I think the <laughs> most important choice that uh, you made was the names of the characters. Yeah, absolutely. They're two uh, characters from um, a great Australian movie called The Castle. So um, we thought that represented um, two quintessential Australian characters as well. They're having a good conversation, a robust conversation, but respectful at the same time. All right. I guess I have a new movie to add to my list. So let's. Uh, I'll get back to you with once I see that movie and then I'll match up the character names. Um, so... We want a movie review from you, Risco, after you've done it, because this is an iconic Australian film. All right, I'll I'll, I'll do a movie movie review and then juxtapose it with this paper and compare and contrast the uh, the two characters. Love it. I think it might help as well if you watch this movie if you are um, perhaps doing a sabbatical in Australia sometime as well. Uh, it's it's on the homework list. It's on the study list. Yeah, and then afterwards, watch Cracker Jack because they're a good segue to each other. I'll just put that. Uh, I don't know. I, I actually feel like you're joking, but I'm going to add it to my to my list no. as well. No, Cracker Jack is fantastic. All right, both about a bowls club. <laughs> so we've we talked about a couple of different curriculum terms already, and you talk about in the paper mandated curriculum, centralized curriculum and non-centralized curriculum. So I'm, I'm wondering, and these terms are different, obviously from different countries. So um, in your context, what do these terms mean and like how do, how do they 
fit with student and teacher experiences when we're navigating the different types of curriculum? I think, um, you know, it reminds me of a comment someone once said to me that, you know, whenever you utter the phrase, gee, that's weird, you should always be forced to say, compared to me. So of course, we all, we all presume that our view is correct. So when people, as an Australian, we have what's called mandated curriculum, the government telling us what to teach. So I must admit, when I first read about models-based practice as an undergrad and even postgrad, I, I did not get this thing of, what do you mean it's telling you subject matter? I've got someone telling me subject matter. It's called the government. I'm supposed to do what they tell me to do. Um, so we just decide quite often in Australia the how to teach, not the what to teach so matter. So Australian teachers create learning experiences to implement the subject matter. It was only, I guess, from speaking to other people and getting an understanding that I realised in some other countries in the world, you might have a syllabus document or a curriculum document, but it's more of a suggestion um, than mandated that you must do it. So then, of course, I started to see, right, I can see why these models-based practices are so popular because, yeah, if I didn't have a curriculum document, I would be looking for some kind of guidance myself. And I guess we started to see that this was part of the problem we thought as well, because in countries like Australia, the UK, uh, New Zealand, where you have mandated curriculum, if someone suggests models-based practice, there's parts that you can perhaps fit in, but there's other parts where you go, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing the report on the games last week in a sport ed model, that, that doesn't fit. I've got time, I haven't got time, et cetera. There might be other parts that fit. So again, this is where it comes down to this conversation about fidelity of the model when you're using it. And of course, in places where you don't have mandated curriculum, you kind of look at doing both parts, the how to plus the, the what to do as well. So they were the things which we also thought were really important in the discussion. Ash Casey and um, David Kirk write about that a little bit in their book, I think they wrote last year as well, speaking about this. And what's interesting is, um, I think, so, I can't remember who it is, has done some research looking at, it doesn't matter whether you've got mandated or not, that it's still a challenge for implementing models-based practice for those range of reasons. I'll jump in there. I reckon this um, was sometimes called second generation models-based practice. They have an assumption that, an implicit assumption that the teacher is pedagogically um, likable at PEP and so therefore we will provide the template whereas I think first generation pedagogical models like the Spectrum go no no the, the teacher is the pedagogical master that needs to put into practice the curriculum that suits their students and I think that's a little bit um, like how we see curriculum in Australia we have a mandated curriculum Australian curriculum for health and PE it sets out the student achievement standards and gives examples of elaborations of what that would mean in terms of content. But a lot is left to the teacher to understand how to construct meaningful curriculum for their students in their context. And there's no point in doing badminton if you don't have badminton within 20 kilometres of your school. It's not providing for life beyond the physical education class. So mandating that you have to do badminton would be a silly thing to do. But mandating that games and sport are one of the um, common features of a quality physical education program 
Absolutely. So the teacher makes some uh, curriculum decisions around content based on their understanding of the students, their lives, their needs, and what's going to be of utility for them beyond the school gate for physical activity now and in the future. Um, so we looked at the model space practice in Australia often and go, we don't understand the conversation. Sometimes it's happening overseas in other countries because as Brendan said, we look at a model as just an idea, not as a blueprint as they've been described. And the, we set our teachers up to go, how do you make use of that idea? Not how do you implement that idea with fidelity? How is that idea actually useful in your context? And 2014, Steve Stoltz and I wrote that, um, you know, we really see teachers as interpretively pragmatic. So they don't actually take something off the shelf and then implement it. They take it off the shelf and go, how do I modify, adapt, um, amend this to suit my context? And so back in 2014, Steve Stoles and I started to, I guess, subtly push back on the idea of model fidelity, particularly for teachers. So it's been really interesting to see that idea of teachers as interpretively pragmatic, um, gain more traction in the models-based practice literature in the more recent years. Yeah, and, and I think that that's come out lately of having these aspirations instead of like these mandatory, like if you're doing this model, it has to have these specific things, otherwise you can't say it's a model. And the conversations we've had through even through this podcast have been that, you know, a lot of that stemmed from researchers being able to like replicate, like replicate my study of sport education. Well, how did you do it? I did it this way, exactly, so you could replicate it. Whereas the replication doesn't matter necessarily if you're playing with, if you look at teaching as an art form and you're trying to implement parts of a tactical games approach or cooperative learning, but you're not doing everything. Are you still teaching well? Maybe, and adding all of those you know, mandatory things that were rigid, like you, you cite the um, Great White Hope, White Elephant article, and I think during that time in 2014, that conversation was there, that there were mandatory things you had to have, otherwise you can't call it a model. And I think those have changed, and you alluded to the Shane, of that that conversation has shifted a little bit, that, you know, and I, and I love that aspect of that, how you're teaching and showing student pre-service teachers, hey, this is a model. What can you use from it? How can you use it in your setting? And I think that the hybrid model, the hybridization of different models or taking things has really, uh, again, I, I don't see a ton of research behind it. Like there's not the same level of research behind it, but you, you are seeing some things trickle through, which is, which is great. That last point is a really interesting one because I did my PhD on exactly what you're saying, how to hybridise the model. So I was, I finished my 18 years of school teaching and people were saying, you're not doing game sense, you're not doing sport ed, you're sort of doing something that's a blend of both but not both. You need to call it something new. And also you've got this progression that moves from more probably the game sense approach to more of the sport education model, but it's neither of them as you go through the progression. And so I came up with this idea of sport literacy, articulated a curriculum progression, articulated a, um, a content model, 
because that's what we were using as our framework here at Flinders University to um, teach for sport, the functional use of sport knowledge beyond the school gate. Um, but then there's no research money, there's no grants to then go and um, do a program of study to test that and we have to chase where the grants are and the grants aren't in that area. So it sits there as a, as you say, as an untested idea beyond the original concept because you know, now that we're beyond our PhDs, we've got to pursue the grants and our research is coming out of the grants. Sounds like a sabbatical idea. <laughs> Did I sell myself? Okay, good. Uh, so I, I need to come and work at your university so I can get a sabbatical. Sounds good. Hey, the office is going to be open. Idea. Don't worry. Just the idea of a sabbatical. Uh, so I, I liked hearing the two characters from the castle, uh, Laurie and Daryl, um, about the conversations. And you talk about how the characters that you talk about use viewing and using models differently depending on their belief system and curriculum expectations. So can you give us a, just like a overview or highlights from this dialogue about model space practice between Laurie and Daryl? I think it's, again, like these two guys struggling with a lot of the issues that um, we've spoken about and Casey's spoken about, like the fidelity of the model. Um, are you failing? Like a view, again, a versus view. If I don't do the model 100%, I'm failing. But if I change it um, to suit the kid, I, I'm failing the model, but I'm succeeding the kid. And we kind of said, well, that's a versus view of it. Um, as Pilly was saying, you know, you might... You might buy a toolbox, but you don't get every tool out at once to use it. And that's another bit of a, uh, an analogy we've used with the Spectrum about saying um, it's a toolbox and it helps to show as well as a lens, like the cluster of styles that exist within models-based practice or a lot of teaching styles. And when you're teaching a kid, I guess if you were you know, doing a game sense type approach or using an inquiry or problem solving model, if the kid couldn't catch you don't sit there and go, mm, well, I know I'm supposed to keep persisting with this game-based inquiry, but the kid has been hit in the face five times now. Um, or, no, no, actually, I don't want to fail the model. I'll stay with it. You, you know, of course, the kid goes, Sir, look, I can't handle this anymore. So you adapt it, and that's the part that Pilly was saying about being pragmatic. So these two characters are talking about these problems or these challenges which have popped up from the literature, I guess, in the things that we've spoken about or the challenges with model fidelity, being pragmatic, changing, are you really failing the model if you do that? Um, which we, of course, are arguing, no, you're not. That's just a view. Um, and of course, at the end of the day, we forget, well, sometimes we forget, I think, in these conversations that ultimately the student or the learner, the kid, they are at the center of the learning experience, which we, the teacher, are trying to create to assist them in meeting the objective or improve their learning. Not sit there and me get on the phone to, um, you know, Daryl Seedentop or Bunker and Thornton say, hey guys, just did your model. I did it really well. Um, no, that's not really the, the point of what our job is. The, the kid or the learner is ultimately us. So the conversations pretty much around those two guys um, dealing with a lot of the challenges that we thought from our conversations and from Ash Casey's literature um, deal with in implementing this this model and seeing that, you know, if you have a versus approach, as always, you, you're going to lose or lose parts. 
and that ultimately is the teacher remember why you became a teacher to meet the learner's need. I will say that your toolbox example blew my mind. It's just like such a perfect metaphor, like an example of what you said is like you don't buy the toolbox to use every single tool. And I'm going to steal that if that's okay. Can I start using in my <laughs> classes as well? Fair enough. We'd appreciate it. It, yeah. it just yeah. makes so as much as sense though. Like, the, as long as you provide the reference, we're very happy. <laughs> Great. My PowerPoint references will have your slide, uh, your, your reference, but it, it makes a lot of sense. Like, having those tools like yes you have them when you need them but you don't have to use every single one to make you know whatever you're building like a cabinet or whatever you don't use every single thing but sometimes different projects need different things and so uh, thank you for that that was really good so let me let me repeat Lori's question uh since i think a lot of people would have this question based on reading or kind of understanding the two models so is does the spectrum then replace models-based practice? Uh, we, we would say de definitely not. And another um, analogy um, which we've kind of come up with is like saying that we think uh, the spectrum is probably like the tip of the spear um, or the head of the spear which goes on top of models-based practice. So you, it doesn't replace models-based practice. It's, it's just to help models-based practice get where it wants perhaps or fly further or give the teachers the tools again the toolbox um to implement models based practice um and hopefully achieve the outcomes which i guess the creators of models based practice speak about but again ultimately for for the learner so if you're talking about um you know uh in a sport ed approach where you might have kids being the coach do, do you perhaps teach the kids how to do reciprocal style first so that they all have an idea about how to give feedback to the players, which they're going to perhaps do in a week or so or the next lesson. If my job is to be the coach, well, then I've had the opportunity to learn how to give feedback to, um, to improve on performance. Um, if there's a part where kids are practicing on their own, perhaps you've done a self-check episode from the spectrum so that kids are able to know, well, how, how do I analyze my own performance? What are the things that perhaps I focus on? Um, you may have taught the kids if you're in the middle of the season and we've had a team meeting and Shane, our captain's identified that um, we've got some problems, well then how do we solve the problems? So would you use a, a convergent discovery episode to teach them how to discover the answer to the problem or identify the problem and then solve it and things such as that. So no, it definitely doesn't replace models-based practice. Again, that would be like a versus approach saying, yep, this is better than this. You don't need those things. No, you, you definitely do need the um, models-based practice. And I think, again, an important part to remember is the spectrum is more focused on the how to teach rather than the what to in terms of the curriculum. So as Pilly was saying, a lot of models-based practice does have like a curriculum model within it, so to speak, as in the, the content as well. Right. So, and we've used the words ped pedagogical models, curriculum models, we've talked about teaching styles. And so I'm wondering if you can kind of, and I know that an undergraduate student would have a hard time understanding this. I know some like 
people who do research in this or like our, you know, PhD students or grad students might not understand the difference between the three. So can you kind of explain those terms and how they kind of relate to each other? Yeah, I'll do it best. To keep it, I guess, as simple as possible, I would say the curriculum model is more about the, the what to teach, more about the content, the ideas, etc. The PED model is more about the how to teach and a teaching style is um, the behaviour or the way that the teacher is going to teach to usually meet like one, one objective or a smaller objective or a learning outcome. Um, the tricky part, Risto, I think, is um, they, they all overlap in some way, like a whole series of Venn diagrams. Um, there's no point in just saying, here's, here's the content I want to teach, but yet I, I don't know how to get the food to the table, so to speak. It just sits in the book, doesn't it? Or sits in the, in the kitchen, never comes out. So they all overlap and hence the confusion. Philly, did you want to, I think you had your hand up there. And so at a macro level, the curriculum model, which I reckon every curriculum framework that's been written in the last 60 or 70 years follows is, and again, the nomenclature might change depending upon what you're reading, but every curriculum model goes from fundamental movement skills to movement sequences to the application of those sequences in context, which we then call specialised movement skills, and then the ability to... Uh, think strategically and tactically using those movement sequences. And then finally, the capacity to be able to be self-directed to improve your own or somebody else's performance. In other words, by the time we get to year 9, 10, 15, 16 years of age, the curriculum model takes students on a learning progression to be able to use their knowledge, understanding and skills in a self-directed way to um, take some ownership of their learning and the direction of their learning. Every curriculum model I've seen for the last 40 years that I've been teaching and undergraduate goes through that same progression. So there's the macro level of the model. Then at another level, you have a model of teaching, game-based approach, for example, which has a particular pedagogical toolkit or we would say has a particular cluster of teaching styles that when you see that cluster of teaching styles, everybody goes, oh, that's a game-based approach. It's not a drill-based approach. But you'll see drills in a game-based approach. But people will instantly recognise that cluster of teaching styles as that pedagogical model. So the teaching styles, as Brendan said, is that that moment-to-moment use of a pedagogy for a particular outcome. And any um, lesson, any coaching episode, is a cluster of teaching styles because it's episodic. Okay? We, we are taught that um, gold standard best practice in teaching is to make your teaching um, objectives explicit to the students. Otherwise, they're guessing how much is good enough, when it is good enough, how do I know that I've, I've succeeded? So you've got to bring them into the learning conversation. So we make the teaching explicit to the students. Well, that's going to be... A, a command style, a directed teaching strategy because you are telling them, you are making it explicit. And then we might get them to go and play an initial game which is recalling their skill ability, which the teacher can then use by observation as a check of who is where they think everybody should be at this point in time. 
Well, that's practice-style pedagogy. Then the teacher might stop and do some inquiry, guided, convergent, divergent, whatever style they think is appropriate, to find out the visibility of the student's learning, to make their learning visible in order to have information about where to go to next and where to go to next with which clusters of students because they won't all be at the same um, level of learning. So then we can start to differentiate who goes back into the game, who comes out into a practice, who needs an elevated practice challenge in a modified version of the game. And this is where we start to get the sophistication of teaching practice coming in. And I think that's where the spectrum of teaching styles lands us. It provides that micro-pedagogical perspective that provides the sophistication that we often see with master teachers who are able to differentiate their teaching based on the needs of the clusters of similar needs in a class rather than the everybody's doing the same thing at the same time through the same lesson, which implicitly tells us that that teacher is saying every learner in this class is exactly the same challenge point, which we all know through just general growth and development models is a nonsense. They're not going to be. I think the last five minutes, honestly, I could like pull apart and put in just like as a five minute podcast because I, I feel like that was such a, you didn't, both of you, like a macro overview, but bringing it down into like distillable ideas. And I feel like sometimes people zone out during podcasts. And if you just zoned out during podcasts, you should just go back four minutes and listen back to that. Um, I thought that was really, really, really well put as a explanation of how the style, like how the spectrum actually works in, in real life. And in context, like what it looks like. So bravo, good job. Um, so let me, oh, let me you. ask you this, uh, as, as we kind of wrap up the podcast, I'm, I'm wondering if you can, uh, tell us about the different types of teaching failures that can occur when teachers attempt to use models-based practice. Um, and also like maybe you can provide a couple examples of teachers and how they can address the challenges based on the discussions we've had so far. I think what, one is what we speak about in the article and we've just spoken about a couple of questions back is if you have a versus approach, you know, the concept of am I doing the textbook version of sport ed or I'm not, then you're just, you're going to beat yourself up. And I'm not saying that it should just be laissez-faire, oh, I'm putting this part in, I'm taking this out. There, again, along this line of deliberate teaching, as the spectrum speaks about, there, there's a reason why I've, as Pilly was saying in this last question, I've, I've stopped doing inquiry for a moment because Brendan is not catching the ball. I am making the choice to deliberately teach him now explicitly how to catch the ball because in my professional opinion, this is what he needs at the moment. And I'll take him out and then I'll re-enter him, but he's not going to discover anything except how to get a sore face if he keeps getting hit with the ball. So the versus approach um, should, not, should be really mindful of that when you're applying any pedagogical model um, at, at all. <clears throat> um, do, do I need to adapt it to, to meet the needs of the learner? That's a pragmatic um, decision that the teacher makes. Um, and I think the other part is if, if, you, if you don't have spectrum language or the, or I think Pili and I've used this phrase, we need to develop a bit more like the pedagogical literacy 
of understanding the micro-pedagogies of what you are doing and what you're asking the student to do, then it can be a little bit hit and miss. Um, so if you want someone to really discover, as in the discover that is new knowledge to them, then you're going to have to present them with an opportunity to discover, not be told, but actually to fail, to trial and error, to do these things. But if you don't actually understand the concept discover or create, or if you want someone to recall, so sometimes you might be doing a game sense approach, but what you actually want is people to recall known principles in a game-like environment and perform them. So that's okay as well, if that's what you want to do. But again, it comes back to your intention. So if you don't have that pedagogical literacy to understand what it is you, you want to do and what you ask the students to do, it, I think it can lead to this confusion or, or failure. The common misdirection I see in game-based approaches in the use of questioning is the, the questions are there to guide discovery. That's the creation of new understanding skills or abilities. But the coach or the teacher actually doesn't have a baseline on what the existing skills, knowledge or ability of the individual is. So they don't know whether that question is operating on recall of existing understanding, so it becomes practice of their knowledge, or whether it's guiding them to a gap in their knowledge, which is going to then be filled with a new understanding and so we can only do um, production cluster pedagogies for the creation of new knowledge skills and understandings if we have good diagnostics on where each of our learners actually is we've got to learn a profile so that we know that this question will actually help shift them towards new understanding that's that guidance bit but if we don't have that and we're just randomizing the questions that we're using in class, most of the time they're operating on recall and therefore they're practicing the refinement of the existing knowledge. They're not actually introducing new knowledge, skills and understanding for the student. You know, I've never thought about it that way, and th but that makes a lot of sense. You're not actually doing that specific style if you're not producing. I could say that I'm doing the production styles of teaching but if i'm if the students are not producing any knowledge and if they're just regurgitating what they learned last year then that model doesn't actually produce any knowledge it just goes back to the practice one that's a that's a that's a that's a that makes me think a lot and you know you should think about uh <laughs> going into higher education and teaching about this stuff you you you're really on point <laughs> So moving, like as, as a last kind of closing question, what's the next step? Like what, what can we do to assist teachers in understanding the complexity and the implementation of models-based practice through the spectrum? That's a good question, because that really sounds like a, um, a PD or professional development where you'd um, help people understand the spectrum. I think a little bit better, or at least start reading about some of the, the ideas mentioned in the spectrum. Um, at the risk of shameless, shameless self-promotion, too late, um, we obviously would suggest re reading this article that I guess this discussion is based around. Um, and then there was a book that uh, Pilly and I, Mitch Hewitt, um, edited last year and also contributed to called um, The Spectrum of Teaching Styles in Physical Education. Um, and there's some great chapters in there by 
spectral gurus, Mark Byra, uh, Pamela Kalina, Mike Goldberger, Sarah Ashworth, obviously, where it's really practical-based uh, information about how they've used the spectrum across a wide range of things, whether it's um, in universities, at schools, in sports coaching, and little tidbits. I think, I must admit, you know, obviously, Pilly and I are spectrum nerds a little bit, so... You're the spectrum nerd, I'm the maverick. <laughs> All right, well, Pilly's just hanging around Spectrum Nerds then. But um, um, it, it does seem at times intimidating. I think, you know, when I first saw it and was like, 11 styles, I'm flat out using three. I'm not, I can't do this. But Sarah Ashworth and Mosman even right, I think, in teaching PE, they knew probably three teachers who had great Spectrum knowledge and they perhaps only used three to four styles most of their career. I mean, that's another conversation in itself, but it certainly wasn't because they were lazy or they, or they had a versus view of those styles. It's just what pretty much curriculum and a whole lot of other things required them to do at times. Um, but yeah, I definitely start with reading um, some things about the spectrum and, and some of those other things. And uh, I guess, you know, if you said to me, I want to have a go at one of these styles, when you find an opportunity, um, to, to, to do something different, like perhaps teach social skills, then having a go at something like reciprocal style is not that far from practice style. Um, and be kind to yourself when you have a go at it, because no, it's not going to go the way you hope perhaps first go. And the, I think the kids as well will probably think, what are you doing here, teacher? This, I'll tell you how it works. You you demonstrate and then you give me feedback. Not Not... Darren or Laurie next to me, he's not giving me feedback. This kid shouldn't be talking to me. Um, so there's going to be a change in whatever it is, 10 years of teaching where all of a sudden someone's giving feedback who's not the teacher. So, Shane? So, thinking about that question, uh, what can academics do? If you're interested in using the spectrum of teaching styles in your academic program, there are three or four chapters in the book that Brendan mentioned teaching uh, the spectrum of teaching styles in physical education where academics have talked about how the spectrum of teaching styles provides a pedagogical platform for their pre-service teachers understanding of practice so for example Josh Rankin talks about how the spectrum of teaching styles is the pedagogical grounding that everything that then happens through the degree here at Flinders University first year first semester first physical education topic, they are introduced to the spectrum of teaching styles and they start practicing teaching of those styles. And then that leads into, now let's look at a game-based approach through the lens of a spectrum of teaching style. Now let's look at a sport education model through the lens of the spectrum of teaching style, which brings in that level of nuance and I've used, I think earlier, sophistication to pedagogy that um, I think if you stay looking at it from an outsider, how do I use that model? You don't get this, let's go inside the pedagogical perspective, let's go inside the model, we'll see its complexity. And I think that's where the um, spectrum of teaching styles aids us as pre-service teacher academics. It gets our, gets our students into the complexity of the models-based practice ideas that many people are working with uh, when they do their sport modules. The other aspect of it is the spectrum of teaching styles needs 
empirical research into each of the teaching styles to validate those styles. Um, but then also we need naturalistic inquiry of teachers informed by the spectrum of teaching styles and how they make adjustments to their, um, their planning, their impact and their pre-impact evaluation as a consequence of being aware of that. Not where we come in with that, let's have a control, let's have a implement uh, intervention group and, uh, and compare the two. Let's work with the teachers in their context and go, how does this idea have utility to you in your context? That naturalistic inquiry. Yeah. Well, thank you both for, for coming on. I feel like there have been so many like really good gems in, in this podcast and I, and I want to thank both of you for coming on and sharing the sharing the information. And um, what I'll do is I'll I'll link to the the book that you talked about, the um, Ashen and uh, Muskamasin's uh, book as well, and then the article that we're talking about today, so uh, people can kind of reach out to you. And I'll put both of your social media on there as well, so people want to carry on the conversation, they can. Um, Brendan and uh, Shane. Thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to chat. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also going to get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.